at one level, it's just this huge knock to your confidence because you think you're all that and then you're dirt, right? At a physiological level, it's like being punched a hundred times in the gut because you're carrying the responsibility of the other shareholders, the workers who are going to get money out of it, everybody. And that is just horrible. It was all there. And then 30 seconds later, it's all gone. Welcome to Secret Leaders from Infamous Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta, and this is the podcast where you can learn the secrets of top entrepreneurs. Today, I'm talking to the phenomenally successful serial entrepreneur, Norman Crowley. He's founded multiple businesses in everything from welding to eco-friendly energy. Each time he's turned them into multi-million pound ventures before selling and moving on to the next big thing. His track record is a joke, in a good way. Now, this journey hasn't been without its bumps, and Norman has had his fair share of bruises too, including having a dream billion-dollar deal slip right through his fingers at literally the last minute. So, there's a lot to cover, but first, let's go back to the beginning. Grew up in West Cork, south of Ireland, and was born in 1970. So, Ireland back then was like a third-world country, uh, grew up on a farm, It was just a lot of hard work from a very young age and also very much an old fashioned house, you know, um, religious parents, kind of strict upbringing. And so when I got to kind of 10 or 12 watching American TV, watching Dallas, right, and soap operas like that, you realize that these other people live a much more liberal life and a much wealthier life. And I suppose out of that came this desire just to get out of this mire of kind of strictness and bullshit to a degree and also make money, right? But certainly, you know, I break kids now that I meet in teens into two types, people who want to escape and people who are happy to live at home forever. And I was the escape kind. I wanted to just get out. And even now, like I live three hours away from my parents i see them once a quarter that's more than enough okay so do you think your childhood impacted your career yeah i think so i think any entrepreneur it's not a comfortable existence like you said it earlier anxious and rich right and so especially if you're a serial entrepreneur you do it multiple times then there's something driving you and that's something that's driving you may not be entirely healthy because once you've made enough money to retire, which I did kind of nearly 20 years ago, then why would you keep going, right? And and yet I'm working harder now than I've ever worked. And so that drive is not entirely healthy, I don't think. Yeah, I think, I think the um, commonality of anxiety and entrepreneurship are, are very common because, and I've said this a few times, but entrepreneurship is all about creating a vision of a future that doesn't yet exist. And really so is anxiety. Anxiety is essentially the stress of being here, but wanting to be there. That's what anxiety is. So a business plan is all about, we're not, we're not there. So how do we get there? Yeah, exactly. And uh, well, we say as well, future truths, right? So it's not true now, but in our heads it is. Yeah, exactly. And in the meantime, you're stuck in the real world. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and sometimes you're stuck in the real world with people who were thinking 20 years ago. And so that can be frustrating too. Yeah, that's spot on. And as I'm saying, I mean, you started really young, right? You started your first business when you were 16. So did people take you seriously back then? I don't think people take me seriously now. So um, <laughs> no, uh, I don't think they did. But like, look, back then business 
was simpler because you're 15 or 16, you've got a welding business. I got, we incorporated our first business when I was 16, but we were working on it from when I was 14. And that was a welding business. Like my dad, we were on a farm. My dad taught me how to weld when I was 13. And from pretty much as soon as he showed me how to weld and do engineering stuff, I was doing work for farmers and builders and stuff like that. And so it wasn't a question of whether they took you seriously. It was just a question of whether you could do the work. And if you could, they paid you to do it, you know, and, um, and I loved that because it gave me money. It allowed me to be different from kind of everybody else. You could do stuff and buy things and travel places. And that was brilliant, you know. And so we set up a welding business then while I was still in school. And my mom insisted that I finish, uh, I guess, my A-levels is what, is what they call it in the, in the UK. And so I finished my A-levels. But by the time I finished my A-levels, I had, I had kind of eight people working for me at that stage. And it was just all about people wanted work we could do the work let's do it you know so and and we sold that business when i was just turning 20 amazing and actually just like for the record how many businesses have you sold in total because we're going to cover some of them uh one two five yeah amazing that's quite some track record yeah it is yeah although you know back to anxiety it's never good enough right (laughs) any failures along the way with them no, because what we do with failures, there have been failures, but they're mainly ones that never got off the ground in the first place. Um, and so we put in a bit of money into it to see has it got anything. And then we either pivot it into something that's much better or else we kill it before it ever even sees the light of day. And we're doing that all the time, actually. We're, you know, we, we would, we never count it as failures, just something that we explore, we throw a bit of money at it. And then if it works great, but nothing that got employees and a business plan never failed. So I guess, uh, by this point, listeners are, are wondering, okay, what are some of these businesses? So why don't we start with Ibeon, which obviously you founded when you were 25, right in 1995. So I hope you don't mind me giving up your age for free just then. What did Ibeon do? Um, it was an internet company. So started off first as a just selling computers and software to small businesses. And then around 97, we discovered the internet. And at the time, the internet was just this kind of dial up thing that made funny noises and was pretty slow. But we became fascinated with its application for business. Most of the time, people were either booking travel or downloading porn. We became obsessed with its business applications. Could lawyers, for instance, access government databases with it? Could people spend money on it? And what way would they spend it? And so, and at the time we started the business that wasn't called e-commerce and then it became called e-commerce. And we grew that business quite quickly um, to 170 people. And then in uh, 1999, two telecoms companies were both going public at the same time. And they were both told they needed one of these sexy internet companies. And both companies started bidding to buy us. And we eventually sold to one of them. We sold the majority. We ended up keeping a minority of it, but we sold the majority in 99. And I effectively retired at the ripe old age of 28 for about three weeks. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, um, take us through the feeling, right? So you did a deal to sell the company for £14 million. How many shareholders in the business? How much of the £14 million was yours? Uh, about four million of it was mine. Uh, there was three or two other shareholders, three altogether. So four million pounds at 25 years old is a lo- lot of money. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. You think it's a lot of money at that point. And um, 
So, well, first of all, there's tax, right? And then... Um, sure, you're right. So £1 million. No, sure. <laughs> yeah, if you've got a bad tax advisor. So, yeah. you, look, it was magical at that age. I guess, you know, when you sell a business, it never comes with a health warning, right? And a business isn't just a vehicle to make money. A vehicle is an expression of your creativity. It's working with friends. It's all of that, right? And then the thing nobody warns you about is that when when it's sold, you just end up with a bank balance and the friends are gone, the vision is gone, the mission is gone. It's just a bank balance, right? And other people have a bigger bank balance than you. And so what I did for a couple of weeks was I did everything that people do. I bought, we already had a house, but I bought cars and and we had a young baby at the time. And and then it was just all kind of empty. My wife wanted to keep working. And, you know, you then realize that maybe this was more than just a money-making vehicle. Maybe we were doing this for a deeper reason. And so that business then, the telecoms company took it over. They invested a whole load of money on it. And then it was an internet company. And then the dot bomb of 2000, late 2000, it went spectacularly bust. And I happened to be on the board of it still at the time. And because I was known as the founder of it, I got to experience like how the media attack you when something goes spectacularly bust. Like one day I'm a passive director in this business and the next day I'm defending myself in the press for being a failure. And there were some good lessons actually around that too. Um, you know, we know we all know it now because of Twitter, but people can be incredibly vicious. And, you know, I guess the other learning was if like always control the narrative, absolutely critical. And we, we've, we do that very much since like since that day in 1999, I've had the same publicist. And so we have a full time publicist who controls the narrative all the time. And when something doesn't look like a problem, it's probably a problem and you should get somebody to control the story. And back then, the telecoms company were controlling the story and we were just being washed away by it. Yeah, but it's formative too, right? Like, it really is what doesn't kill you, make you strong, makes you stronger. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. 
It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Okay, so you said for all of about two weeks, right? As in you were happy, you're happy with your exit, you've moved on. Obviously, there's been some challenge with the narrative, etc. But there's a void. And you're 25. I mean, you can't you can't retire at 25 anyway. So what next? Like, what do you actually do with your life at that point? How do you think about what's next? And what ended up happening? So when you open yourself up, I guess, for the new thing, then new things appear. And I had a friend who worked with William Hill in London, and um, I went in to meet him for a pint. He was a manager of a couple of shops. And as I was waiting for him in the shop, I'd never been in a betting shop before. There were a whole lot of gaming machines, and I was just watching people gamble on these things. And they all looked like something from the 70s, right? And so when he came out, I just said, what's the story with these things, you know? And he said, um, these are 80% of the profits on this shop are these machines. And I was like, these things, these things look like something from the 70s. So I said, why don't you make like a digital version that you can download the games and all that kind of stuff? And he was like, they've tried that and nobody likes them. And I was like, look, I've seen video machines in Vegas and stuff. Like that can't be the case. So he said, look, if you're so clever, why don't you build one? So we then not only built a software platform for gaming, even though we'd never gambled, um, but we also built um, the machine, the physical machine, because it turns out the machines were rubbish as well. Like when you opened them to take the money out, the door would fall off them and all that. So what we did was at the time, a machine would take about 150 quid a week um, net each machine. And first machine we built took 70 quid. <laughs> and then the next machine we built took 70 quid as well. And then the next machine we built took 700 quid. So it took about a year to go from knowing nothing to the one that took 700 quid. And then long story short, from 2001 until 2006, we went from eight people to two and a half thousand people. We went from zero revenue to uh, 300 million in revenue. And we floated on the London Stock Exchange in 2006. And how was that experience for you just in general? Like I, I hear that, you know, game public, there's a lot of, process and not a lot of fun but what was your personal recollection and experience of it all yeah well as an entrepreneur right you hear about well we're going to float on the stock exchange and then we're going to make a fortune and also we're going to go on a road show and the road show is going to involve private jets and limos and all that kind of stuff and all of that is the case but what they never tell you is that it's exhausting and nerve-wracking and a real roller coaster and it really isn't as glamorous as as all that. And then on top of all that, investment bankers are, you know, they're essential, but they need to be watched closely. And so, because if you don't watch them closely, then they'll do things you don't want them to do. And so my memory of it now, kind of whatever it is, well over 10 years later is unpleasant. Don't do that again. And so for us now, all the money is raised in the private capital markets. It's a private company and it'll always remain private would be our view. 
because private markets have just become so efficient and you can do pretty much anything you want. Yeah, I think that's that's very fair. And I understand um, you also have a story where you were two hours away from selling it to, was it an Icelandic hedge fund? Yeah, so what happened then? So we were public in 2006 and then company was very happily a public company 2007 and then middle of 2007 an Icelandic hedge fund who already owned kind of 25% of the business offered to buy the whole thing for a billion dollars and um, you know when somebody offers to buy your business for a billion dollars it's impolite to say no so we uh, we agreed to sell um, and because I'd been on it my business partner um, had been on it in the business slightly less time but i'd been in it for kind of eight years and i was kind of sick of the gaming industry um and so i agreed with him that he would stay with the business and as soon as we sold i would leave so for me it was going to be a big result kind of 200 million bucks of exit and what happened was lehman brothers and all of that was happening at the time but we were a strong business we had good recurring revenue so we kept going but then there was lehman and then there was the next lehman and it just kept getting worse and worse and but our thing was still running and so we had all the paperwork done took about seven months and then we're coming up to christmas and we were just waiting for the phone to ring basically to go to the lawyers to sign the documents and as soon as i signed i was gone like 200 million thank you out the door and the phone rang and it was the Icelandic saying, we can't do this deal. Everything is imploding. We're done. And we'd kind of saved the deal about a month before by doing something else. But it was definitely done at that stage. And the whole world was falling apart. And it was very tough, actually. Uh, it kind of sucked all the air out of me for quite a while. It was a pretty dull Christmas, that one. And then what happened in in 2008 like just the world was imploding our share price was in the toilet because the shareholders were pissed because we didn't sell the company and then we dragged it out and and by about may of that year we'd won a big international bid for gaming machines in europe and then we won similar in south america and the business was back on track by about september um to give you an idea at the time of what my life was like i would get up on a monday morning in dublin i would you know, my kids were very young at the time and say goodbye to them, fly to London and then work all week until Thursday night, fly home. And it was kind of seven days a week, basically. And then every third week, fly to Hong Kong, do eight cities from Hong Kong over 10 days. And then every 12th week, fly from Hong Kong to Sydney and spend a week in Sydney because uh, we had a business there. And so, and at the time as well, in for those listening in in imperial i was like 19 stone so i was a big boy and just eating airplane food and on the go food and no exercise for anyone that can't see norman right now he looks like he's about nine stone so (laughs) thank you (laughs) well congrats for that that's probably your greatest success story we could do a whole separate conversation on that but that is remarkable I've become a typical 50-year-old work. <laughs> right. If I don't do a triathlon every quarter, I'm slacking. So, yeah, and then I woke up one morning with all the stress and I couldn't feel my hand. And you know the way you kind of think you've slept funny? And then by lunchtime, I couldn't feel the whole side of my body. And And they did a lot of tests and stuff like that, and they thought it was neurological, which is never good. But it turned out after a while, they figured out it was just kind of extreme levels of stress. And that was a big turning point for me, actually. Big warning shot, big turning point. And um, kind of everything changed from there. 
I went to my business partner and said, you know, I'm, I'm out of here. Let's sell this thing. We sold the business for a half a billion bucks. Shockingly, you would think the sensible thing to do at that point would have been take some time off, right? But we set up this business about two weeks later. Yeah. <laughs> well, the same business partner. No, no. Uh, on my own first, actually. And then my brother came in and last year, kind of 10 years later, I bought my brother out and the business today is that business basically. And then another one along the way, because you asked how many businesses you sold. So in 2004, I met a guy who became a really good friend. He's chairman of our business now called George Polk. Met him in Starbucks in Golden Square. And we cooked up the idea for a big Wi-Fi operator literally on a napkin in Starbucks. We drew it out and that became the cloud, which at the time we sold it was Europe's largest Wi-Fi operator. And we ended up selling that to B Sky B in 2011 for about 80 million bucks. So before we get onto that journey, I want to go back to the thick of it, really. I want to go back to when you were still uh, building Inspired Gaming. You've just lost a billion dollars. Do you remember that period specifically? So obviously you said it wasn't a very fun Christmas, a bit stressful miserable etc do you remember the kind of emotions like that you were feeling at the time you know were they frustration were they anger were they disappointment i mean i just love to actually understand what's going through your head for what period of time well like because everyone has a fragile ego and at one level it's just this huge knock to your confidence because you think you're all that and then you're dirt right and then at a physiological level, it's like being punched a hundred times in the gut because you're carrying the responsibility of the other shareholders, the workers who are going to get money out of it, everybody, you know, your family. And that is just horrible, you know, because it's all, it was all there. And then 30 seconds later, it's all gone. And that's pretty tough. And then, you know, for weeks afterwards, you just open your eyes at the middle of the night thinking, what could have been, right? And then not helped by what I didn't realize at the time was chronic anxiety. Like my life at the time was not only was I, was I a big boy, but I wasn't exercising and like, you know, took seven cups of coffee in the morning just to get going. So your whole system is screwed. And so you're not exactly thinking happy thoughts to begin with. And what about conversations with your, with your family, with your wife? Um, how did those go over that period? Well, there's a couple of things about family. One thing you realize then is that, you know, you don't realize it on the day, but you realize it a couple of days after is that like a support of family is worth everything. Like at the time, we didn't know whether it was going to cause us to go bust or not. Um, so it could have killed us, right, financially, both personally and the business. Um, but you realize that your family you know, your wife is always there. She's just worried about you. She's not worried about money or anything like that. And you realize that, and the kids just give you a hug and you're a daddy and that's it. Right. And so that stuff, you realize that that's the most important thing. And I know that's a cliche, but it's true. And having that crazy support that's unfaltering is just so profound. Yeah, but you do. Like I had to tell my wife that it had fallen through and it's not a call you relish, you know, and, you know, she's disappointed, but she's making sure that you're okay and, you know, all that kind of thing. And look, it's, you know, some people, it's about sports um, and that's the thing and winning, you know, England winning the soccer a couple of weeks ago and then devastation. And the game we play is business, right? 
And so when you lose a business, it's a big loss, right? And it's everything. Yeah. And it shouldn't be, right? But like I got some bad news even first thing this morning, just a deal that we were hoping to do looks like it kind of fell through. And then I at lunchtime I just went for a walk around the gardens here in the office and like this beautiful day here, gardens are stunning. And I was just like, Why would you get so stressed about that stupid thing? You know, and it'll all get fixed tomorrow anyway, so it doesn't matter. But when you're like people say it's just business, but nothing is just business. Like business to me is incredibly personal, right? Because these are relationships that we're building up and people we're trusting and therefore it's all personal. Okay. So the cloud, I guess, you know, of all the businesses that you started then, that's probably the one with the most consumer awareness, so to speak, as in anyone that's walked into, you know, a Starbucks, like you said, that, you know, that's one of the places, the place you started it would have had the thing pop up, you know, do you want to join the cloud, etc.? So what was the vision behind doing it? Was it literally just that it didn't exist, it's a space in the market and do it? Was it an actual piece of frustration that you you faced? Um, I think it was opportunity as well as frustration. So at the time, there was no bandwidth on your phone, right? And so the requirement for connectivity was huge uh, as you traveled around. And so Wi-Fi was the only option. And then we had gaming machines that were broadband connected in 20,000 pubs across the UK. And so all we had to do was bang a Wi-Fi antenna on the top of it. And we had the cloud, the biggest Wi-Fi operator in the world at the time. And then that allowed us to do deals with airports and Starbucks. The other thing is, and I have to say, I can only take 1% of credit for the cloud. Uh, George, my partner in that, was just a genius telecoms entrepreneur. So he understood telecoms, had massive experience in it. So a combination of frustration that it didn't exist combined with opportunity, you know. And um, and it was always a very sexy business, the cloud, actually. It, was, um, it had a very cool launch. And... You know, it grew very quickly and and all of that, you know. But as mobiles became faster from a bandwidth point of view, it definitely became a bit threatened. Um, And so I think we did well to get out when we did, to be honest. Mm, Yeah, I, I would say so as well. I just, I guess I'm interested in this, the luck of starting the cloud is very much that classic preparedness meeting opportunity and you hadn't so had you not sold the gaming company yet and so you were able to do that or was it that you that was 2004 we did the cloud so it was right in the yeah okay of... that's genius yeah 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 no and that's a great story right that's a great opportunity for other entrepreneurs that are listening to understand how to hack into some of the opportunities that you've built in one business and how that could tangentially unlock something for some another business well, I'll tell you another one. I can either tell you now or as we get to it, which is well, one that's tell me now. You've, t- you've titillated me. Okay, so now, this is fast-forwarding slightly, but we can reverse a little bit. Um, so we we now have this big energy platform, basically. So the business now, Cool Planet Group, has multiple businesses in it, but the main one is this thing where in factories we put in our software, we monitor every single piece of machinery, and we report back to the client where they're losing money from um, energy mainly, but from other things, performance and all of that. And this is quite a big platform at this stage. It's in some of the largest companies in the world, 23 countries. And then we also in 2019 decided to start an electric vehicle company as a sister company. And so, and in the beginning, that company converted classic cars to electric. Right. And curiously, the market research said if we did that, nobody would ever buy one. And so 
that business has become hyper successful. It's sold out until the end of 2023 at the moment. But then one day a mining company asked us to convert a vehicle to electric for them, like a Toyota Land Cruiser. And then that looks like a small job for your electric car company. But then we talked to the mine and they were like, by the way, we need energy efficiency in this mine. We need grid balancing. We need all of these things that you have, right? And then we were able to marry them all together into this new mobility platform, what we call EMAS, Energy and Mobility as a Service. And it opens up another billion opportunity, like just like that, because the mine needs the electric mobility capability coupled with the energy management capability. And it turns out we're the only people with that capability in the world. And it turns out they have to take all the diesels out of their mine by 2025 or six, right? And so that's typical of what happens is you just, you've you've got some bolts and you need to bolt them together to make it into something. And, you know, the curse of the entrepreneur on the downside of that is that every day you keep looking for the new thing and the new thing and the new thing. And the skill is to say no to almost all of it. And I'm not that good at that. I tend to say yes to stuff that I shouldn't say yes to. And I have a very patient board and shareholder base uh, when it comes to that. And you see, it's like panic for gold. Track record. Yeah, yeah. But even then, sometimes it's kind of unforgivable, the ideas we get, right? And And also, you see, glamorous electric cars for famous actors is not a sensible thing for an energy efficiency platform company to do, right? That said, it leads to then a multi-billion opportunity. But like in between it leading to that opportunity, it looks slightly stupid. (laughs) And it's a bit like Jeff Bezos yesterday and his rocket, right? So everyone's kind of going, just stick to selling the books, Jeff, right? Um, But actually, in another five or 10 years, the rockets will prove to, you know, there'll be some technology in autonomous vehicles that came from his rocket business. But if you read it in the papers at the moment, he just looks like some stupid billionaire. Totally. I mean, let's let's talk about then. So the, the business you, you founded after the cloud um, was called Crowley Carbon. Uh, sorry, Crowley Carbon. And how long between selling the cloud and starting that company was there again? And There was no gap, actually. We'd already set up the business. Okay, so why? Like, What, what insight had come whilst, uh, whilst building the cloud that sort of led to this? And what was the vision behind the company? Yeah, well, George, who is the co-founder of the cloud, has always been obsessed with climate change. And even as early as 2002, he would invite us to dinner in his house and he'd get some climate scientists to come in and talk. And so at quite early on in the world of climate change, we realized that this was a monster existential problem that we were going to, excuse my French, fuck the world, basically. And so it was always in the back of my mind. And then as we came close to exiting both the cloud and inspired, we were just like, we need to do something about this climate change thing. And I felt as well that at the time, the messaging, and it's still true today, like Greenpeace and these guys do a lot of good, right? But the messaging is very much a blame culture. It is like you, Dan, are to blame for climate change and you, Norman, are to blame and our kids are to blame and so on, right? I was looking at it at the time and all I could see was opportunity. Cars go electric, energy goes solar and wind. 
like this is all opportunity. And so we just felt that business had a role to play. And so what happened then was we started to look at it and what we understood was quite profound. So the world every year digs $4 trillion of energy out of the ground, right? Oil, gas, mainly coal. And it wastes three of the four trillion. So we dig out four and then we waste. In actual fact, we probably waste three and a half of the four trillion. And so we were just like, this is the most insane thing. And our kids will never forgive us for doing this. And so rather than doing solar, which we didn't have any scales in, we looked at factories and we were going, we knew a bit about factories at that point. And we were just going, these guys are wasting most of the energy they consume. And so that's where the original idea came from. And now, like Crowley Carbon now has morphed into what's called Cool Planet Group, which is a group of companies. And Cool Planet Group is everything to do with what's called the energy transition or what's called decarbonization. And in our case, decarbonization of, of energy. Um, and it's become a serious operation globally. Yeah, it's super interesting. So I guess... The nicheness, right, and this is the thing, it sounds like it's a niche business, but it couldn't be further from it. It's a problem of global scale. I guess the question that I've got for you is, what's the vision for you with this? Do you think you'll be working on this for the rest of your life? Because this is not simply that solvable. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm going to hold you to that, mate. You just said definitely on a podcast. It's commitment. Finally, we've got you fucking committed. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> uh, no, no, I'm, um, I don't know if you ever heard the one about the um, the hen and the pig at breakfast, right? So the for your breakfast, if you're not a vegetarian, the hen made a contribution, the pig made a commitment, right? And so um, so we're very committed to, to climate and the climate mission and the side missions around climate too, which are to do with other things like female education and, and other problems like that. And so, no, I'm not going anywhere. And like every, about every six months, somebody tries to buy the group um, and we just kind of go, no, like maybe we can partner, but we can't, it's not for sale, you know? And, um, and it's because the mission is very big and it's very serious. And if we, it's not like we carry this all on our own, that would have a level of arrogance that even on my worst day, I don't have. It's more, we feel we can move the dial on this in, and also we understand the problem more than most. And a lot of people around climate change tend to rope in a lot of wider issues rather than just going climate change is caused by too much CO2 in the atmosphere. We need to stop that from happening or it's going to cause a big problem. And so that's where we come from. And so, yeah, we'll be at this for a very long time. To the outside person in, and I'm going to be super blunt because I'm enjoying your candor and I can tell that I can. Technically speaking, gaming is arguably one of the most offensively negative contributions to society one can make money in. Broadly, I mean, I'm no, I'm no pious saint myself, but I'm just saying that like, very broadly, gambling, gaming, not a good place to be. I'd love to just start with like your personal journey as an entrepreneur and morality, because this business is so exponentially savior 
complex, brilliant, on like all of the type of like maniacal global domination. Let's save the world. This is one way to do it. And fortunately, I've got the resources to do it. I wonder if you spend much time like reflecting on like what a totally different personality Norman Crowley is today than the guy 15, 20 years ago. You know, different and probably the same, right? So, you know, any large business, it's very hard for when you build a large business for it not to create damage of some description. And gaming is very pervasive, right? And causes problems. It causes, for the vast majority of people, it's a great entertainment format. And then for a few, you know, two to 3%, it's a huge problem and they can't leave it alone. And not wishing to be pious about it, but like we did spend a lot of time and money all during the time we had that business, understanding how to stop people from gambling, like we with problem gambling. So we would have signs on the machines saying, this is not a lucky machine. There is no lucky machine. Um, signs saying, you've wasted enough money now, please stop, right? And even to the point of saying, now you've definitely lost enough money and we're stopping you. And then donating to Gamblers Anonymous, donating to, you know, Gamble Aware and all that. So but all that said, it's not good for society, right? That said, if you don't provide a vehicle like we did, then people will gamble on a street corner for two flies going up a wall, right? That's the reality of it. Likewise on alcohol, likewise on all sorts of um, things. So at the time and now, I didn't develop a guilt complex right around that. And this one isn't about being pious. It is this is like the end. If we don't fix this, this isn't something that affects one or 2% of the population. This is something that will wipe out the population of the world. And very quickly now, it will make the world unlivable. And we don't look at ourselves as being pious. We look at ourselves as this is quite a selfish act in one sense, in that I don't want my kids to, I want my kids to live in the same world I lived in. More of it is that I've been to some of these places that are like Bangladesh that are properly impacted by this. And when you go and visit these places, you can't unsee it, right? So then when we wake up in the morning, we think about what we saw in these places. We think about their real world implications. And then we also think about how stupid it is, right? So we have the solution for this now, right? It's not future. We, If we just do this now, uh, we can get it done in seven or eight years. It'll make us money in the process of doing it. So why the hell wouldn't we do it, right? And so it's not really about being a do-gooder. It's about there's a problem. And if we don't fix it, it's going to impact us, our kids, and a whole lot of other people's kids. And therefore... I'm lucky enough to have made my dough. So if you're going to get up in the morning, what the hell else are you going to do? Okay, so let's talk about starting a company of this scale. How much money did you put into this company? How much did other people put into the company? Have you had to raise money on top of it? Yeah, so what we, how much did we put in? We put in, um, I think, a million first in 08 or 09. And then in 2011, I think we put in another million. And then from there, we grew it to 2019 2020 actually without taking on any more money so and by 2020 it was worth about 100 million that is unbelievable 
Yeah. Um, mind you, if we'd taken on a bit more money, we could have probably got there a little bit faster in hindsight. Um, and then in 2020, we took in about 30 million euros from a French energy transition fund. And since then, we're in the process of taking in about another 25, 30 million now. And then early next year, we'll probably take in about 50 million into it because we're, as we say, we're on a tear now, right? It's all... Now it's about growing incredibly quickly, doing more acquisitions, expanding to suit the opportunity, basically. For my final question, I wanted to know what Norman's best piece of advice is, but instead he offered a story about hot coals. So here's that instead. When I was 21, I learned how to walk on hot coals. And then I became slightly obsessed with learning how to walk on hot coals. And so I learned how to teach people how to walk on hot coals. And then we used to run these kind of firewalk seminars. And... The reason you do a firewalk is to overcome your fear. You know, you're afraid to talk to that girl, a guy, whatever the fear might be, right? And you're afraid to go on a plane or whatever it might be. And so when you're going to walk on hot coals, there are three bits of advice. And they're the exact same bits of advice for business, right? So the first one is how you walk on hot coals is you take 25 ton of timber, you burn it, and then you roll out all the embers, right? And it's very hot. Like, so how you show people that it's very hot is you take a rasher or a piece of bacon and you ask people how long they think it's going to take to cook on this, right? And they say a minute, two minutes, five minutes, and then you throw in the rasher and it just incinerates, right? <laughs> so there's no doubt this is hot. So then... The pieces of advice. So first one, fill your mind with happy thoughts, right? So you're you're standing in front of this bed of hot coals. There's no point in going, I'm going to burn and this is going to hurt a lot, right? You need to find Zen basically and quickly. And in business, if you're not tuning into podcasts like this or, and you're hanging around with people who are positive and go forward and everyone just that you hang around with says that you're never going to amount to anything, then you need to make a change, right? But it's important to be surrounded, not by people who are just saying, Norman, you are great, but people who believe that it can be done and will also criticize you, but at least their heart is in it, right? That's the first one. The second one is the one we talk about, which is goals and communicating those goals. So if you're going to walk on hot coals, you want to have a goal to walk from the beginning till the end, not stop halfway through or, and turn around and come back because you'll just burn, right? So you want to go from A to B as fast as possible. And in business, you want to have the courage to communicate what you're doing, and then you will gather your army and things will work out pretty well. And then the final one is keep fucking walking. Right. So this business shit is not easy. Right. Anyone who tells you it's easy is not trying hard enough. Right. And so keep walking. Don't give up. And I know there are all these posters about that, but don't give up. Amazing. What's what's meeting you on the other side of the of the cobalt, dare I ask? What happens at the end is there's a basin of water because what happens when you get out of Zen is you find that there are bits of coal stuck in your toes and it burns your feet. So you got to stomp it in water to quench it. <laughs> Amazing. Norman, it's been a massive pleasure having you on here. Um, how can people follow your journey if they want to follow up with you? I've just given you a follow on Twitter. Why don't you give yourself at least a shout out there? Yeah. So on Twitter, Norman Crowley one, the number one, and then coolplanetgroup.ie uh, for Ireland. Uh, is the main website where all the crazy shit is itemized. Amazing. Thanks so much, man. It's been amazing. Thanks, Dan. 
Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. We were pushing ourselves, I would say, past the brink of exhaustion. I mean, and it was a brute force effort. We didn't really know what we were doing, but uh, we knew that we couldn't slow down and take a breath and really reflect on, you know, our vision or our strategy. And so, you know, we were just building furiously to try to get to the next step without really thinking about the, the long-term view of the business. What is this category that we're trying to go after? That was Howie Liu, the co-founder and CEO of Airtable, recently valued at nearly $6 billion and trying to transform the way we work like Microsoft Office did. Find out why he didn't turn up for the first day he ever did of his job at Accenture and what happened next. This episode was hosted by me, Dan Murray-Serta. It was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Lower Street Media.